Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we just pray that you'll speak to our hearts tonight as we study the wonderful story of Esther. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You might want to back down just a little bit, Steve. Steve, you awake? Good. I want you to try to envision for a moment a biker at a tea party, a ballerina at a football practice, a truck driver at a poetry recital, a vegetarian at a barbecue, an anti-gun activist at a turkey shoot, and how about this one, Vince Dooley at a Georgia Tech Yellow Jacket Booster Club meeting. They are all examples of what I would call a fish out of water. They're people outside of their natural habitat. Another example we could add to our list, the Jewish community in Persia. In 535 B.C., the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians. And King Cyrus of Persia issued an edict allowing the Jews to return to Judah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, their homeland. You remember, Jerusalem, of course, was the city of God. Judah and Samaria, the land that God had chosen for his people. Judah was home. It's where the Jews belonged. But few wanted to return. While in exile, many Jews had prospered. They had rose to positions of prominence. Isaiah 6 verse 13 implies that 90% of Jewry remained in Persia rather than return to their homeland. These Jews became known as the Diaspora or the Dispersion. You remember the New Testament book of James was addressed to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad or the Diaspora Jews. In a sense, these Jews were fish out of water. They belonged in Judah, but they lived in a foreign land under Gentile rulers surrounded by a pagan culture. Sadly, many of these Jews compromised their obedience to God. And yet, as Rodrigo's song just taught us, God is faithful. Great is his faithfulness. And though they compromised their obedience, God remained faithful to them. In fact, his providence supernaturally protected them in these displaced areas. God's providence ensured their survival. And the book of Esther is a monument to God's providence. Providence, remember, is God's overarching intervention in the affairs of man. It's his means of accomplishing his purposes with or without our cooperation. The word providence is the combination of two words, Pro, meaning before, and video, meaning to see. In other words, God sees the end from the beginning, and he orchestrates circumstances all along the way to produce his desired outcome. The prevailing of his will in all situations is what we call providence. Esther proves that God really is in control. One other point about this book, Esther and Ruth are the two books in the Bible named after women. Ruth was a Gentile married to a Jew. Esther was a Jew married to a Gentile. And the book opens by introducing us to the man that Esther married. Verse 1, chapter 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, And the author tells us this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Secular history identifies this man by his Greek name, Xerxes. And we really know a great deal about him. The Greek historian Herodotus called him an incompetent and a corrupt ruler. He may have been incompetent, but he still managed to build an enormous and illustrious empire. John Phillips also provides a summation of Xerxes. He was a tyrannical despot, imperious in temper, ruthless in the exercise of his power, grandiose in his schemes and ambitions, abandoned in his sensuality. One thing's for sure, Ahasuerus loved to drink wine. He may have been an alcoholic. The story begins in the year 438 B.C. 
Chronologically, we could place it in between Esther, excuse me, Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. Between the return of the Jews under Zerubbabel and the return of the Jews under Ezra. Verse 3 tells us, In the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Warren Wearsby makes a provocative point here. Xerxes was able to demonstrate all of his wealth and all of his glory in just six months. It's interesting, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 tells us that it's going to take all eternity for God to demonstrate his wisdom and his riches and his wealth. The exceeding of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. To demonstrate that, it's going to take forever. Riches that can be exhausted in 180 days, guys, ain't real riches. At the end of the 180 days of his exhibition, Xerxes threw a party for his officials. It lasted for seven days. And in verse 7, we're told, royal, there was royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. I told you, Xerxes was a real boozer. He had quite a reputation for us. Herodotus said that he made all his important decisions while sauced. He's going to make another one before the night's over. Now, his state dinner with this, when they pulled the wine out and the drinking really got heavy, it turned into sort of a drunken orgy. And in verses 10 and 11, we're told that when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was drunk. He sent his servants to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. He got a little drunk. He's got this beautiful wife. And so he calls for Vashti to come, and he's going to show her off to all of his noble friends. The implication is, is that he wanted Vashti to do a little hoochie-coochie dance, you know. Tease the men with, his, with her beauty. But Queen Vashti refused. It was a real credit to her character. Her dignity prohibited her from parading herself around and titillating a bunch of smashed sheiks. Vashti, you see, was a lady, not a person, or not, not an object, but a person. Not just some plaything for the king. She was a woman of integrity. She was a woman of dignity. All ladies should have that kind of self-respect for themselves. It's also possible that she was pregnant, which would have added to her humiliation as well. She did give a son by the name of Artaxerxes, and we'll discover his name later. He was the ruler who commissioned Nehemiah's return back to Judah. Queen Vashti's refusal was a noble act, but that's not how Ahasuerus took it. That's not how his counselors saw it. In fact, they interpreted it as a potential uprising, a first strike, really, for women's lib in Persia. Look at what they say in chapter 1, verse 17. The queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. We can't let this happen. We can't let the wives tell us what to do. And so they decide to make an example out of Vashti. They can't take away her dignity, so they take away her crown. She retains her integrity. But at a cost, she ends up forfeiting her crown and her privileges. Hey, understand, virtue comes with a price tag. Maintaining your integrity, being a person of dignity is costly. And that's why it's so valuable. Because there are few people willing to pay the price. Anybody can cave in. Anybody can be a slut. It takes courage to be a person of honor and integrity. In chapter 1, verse 20, Ahasuerus' counselors make an interesting comment. 
They say, when the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. Now, in the Oriental courts, the king's top advisors were usually eunuchs. And I have no doubt that these advisors were eunuchs, since it is obvious that they knew very, very little about women. If you think you can force your wife into honoring her husband, I've got some swampland I would like to sell you. A husband can't demand respect. A husband has to earn respect. Guys, if we want our wives to respect us, we need to treat them with respect. And we need to act respectably. We need to be men of integrity if we want them to be women of integrity. If you bully your wife, if you try to intimidate your wife, she'll rebel against your authority. If you want your wife to support you, if you want your wife to submit to you and trust your leadership, then you have to love her with the sacrificial love of Jesus. It's love that melts her will. It's your love that endures her, endears her to you. It's her love, it's your love for her that earns her respect. Now, four years elapsed between chapter one and chapter two, and they were tough years for Ahasuerus. He spends them fighting the Greeks, and the decisive battle is the Battle of Marathon. He loses it. The Spartans stop his 200,000 troops. They sink 200 of his ships, and he returns to his palace in Shushan, Battered and beaten. He looks forward to forgetting his miseries. He looks forward to just cuddling up with his wife. When suddenly he remembers that he doesn't have a wife anymore. He was drunk. He got angry. He did something foolish. He banished Vashti and he's full of regret. He wasn't thinking. But here's the deal. When a Persian king uttered an edict, it was irrevocable. Not even the king himself could go back and change the edict once it had been uttered. Note that fact because it comes into play again in the story. Ahasuerus' option was to remarry. And in chapter 2, he holds a contest to replace Queen Vashti. He goes on a quest for a new queen. And here is the original version of who wants to marry a millionaire. Right here. The king's servants go on a fox hunt. (laughs) You didn't get it. Think about it for a minute. (laughs) They comb the countryside for some beautiful babes. Josephus tells us that 400 girls were taken to Shushan. 400 girls. The idea was to create a huge harem, and then the king could sample the girls and pick the one that he liked best. Living in Shushan at the time was a Hebrew girl named Esther. She's introduced to us in chapter 2, verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. The older Mordecai and the younger Esther were cousins. Of course, Esther was her Greek name. She was known by her Hebrew friends as Hadassah. And you remember that many of the exiled Jews in Babylon took Babylonian names. You remember Daniel had three Hebrew friends who all had Babylonian names. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. No, 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 no. That's what Ahasuerus was doing with all of these harem honeys. All the girls were brought to the palace. And to prepare for their one crack at being queen, they were given 12 months of Mary Kay beauty treatments. Chapter 2, verse 12 tells us that they got six months with oil of Olay and then six months with Chanel number 5. And when... Her turn came. She was given anything that she might desire. 
that would help her woo the king and impress the king. Fresh grapes, maybe. If she wanted to bring in a T-bone steak, she could. If she needed a sexy nightgown, they supplied it. If she wanted a CD of love songs from the 80s, they would give it to her. (laughs) Scented candles, whatever she needed, she got. And then she went in to spend her night with the king. Chapter 2, verse 14 tells us, She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. All the girls remained the king's concubines, but only one was made queen. Now, let me make sure you know that just because Ahasuerus' method of getting a wife is in the Bible doesn't mean that that method is what we would call biblical. You remember, Jacob worked 14 years for a wife. That's in the Bible, but hopefully that's not biblical. Boaz bought a piece of property and got a wife in the deal. That might have been his way of getting a wife, but trust me, it's not going to work for you. David won a wife by clipping the foreskins off of 200 of his father-in-law's enemies. Now that's in the Bible. But trust me, if you go out and try to get a wife the same way, that's not very biblical. Just because an event is recorded in the Bible doesn't necessarily make it God's will. The Bible also records the foolish deeds of man. Foolish deeds of mistaken men. And so you need to make those differentiations. Rather than get a wife in today's world, interviewing girls by taking them to bed is a good way to get a venereal disease. The biblical means of finding a wife is to keep yourself pure and to trust God to pick out your bride. You do that and you'll find that God can do a better job of picking out a bride than you can. He is faithful. Chapter 2, verse 17 tells us the outcome of Esther's interview. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And he even proclaims a holiday that he calls the Feast of Esther. Esther's Hebrew name, remember, was Hadassah, which means star. And this young girl became the star of Ahasuerus' palace. An amazing demonstration, really, of the providence of God. Imagine, of 400 gorgeous girls, the pick of Persia, an exiled orphan, the great-granddaughter of a conquered Jew, ends up the queen of the empire. Can you imagine a more unlikely scenario? It was a work of God. It's amazing down through the ages how many Jews have been elevated to positions of prominence. Statistically, the world's Jewry is a small percentage of the total human population. And yet their impact far exceeds their numbers. The Jewish people are indeed God's chosen race. It's interesting of the four most influential people of the 20th century, at least as far as Secular historians have voted Karl Marx, Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, and Charles Darwin. Three were Jewish. Do you know which one was not? It was Darwin. But Einstein, Marx, and Freud were all Jews. Over 100 Nobel Prizes have been given out to Jews. Here's a who's who list of Jewish celebrities. Barbara Walters, Larry King, Sandy Koufax... Henry Kissinger, Mark Twain, Barbara Streisand, Kurt Douglas, Enrico Fermi, Bob Dylan, Robert Oppenheimer, Jonas Salk, and the list goes on and on and on, and I don't think it's accidental. God has blessed the Jews even in spite of their unbelief. It's interesting, though, what we're told in chapter 2, verse 20. Now, Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. She was afraid. Apparently, anti-Semiticism was as great a threat then as it has been throughout history. God's providential blessing on the Jewish people 
has in turn produced an envy and a spite among other peoples. Mark Twain once called anti-Semiticism the swollen envy of pygmy minds. But you know, it's more than just prejudice. Hatred for Jews is not the ordinary run-of-the-mill form of prejudice. The Bible tells us that Satan is the source of anti-Semiticism. History's relentless onslaught against the Jew is his way of attacking God. You see, if Satan can't get to God directly, he'll just bash his kids, his chosen. And the Jews have become a favorite target of Satan. The survival of the Jewish people down through the ages has indeed been the result of God's wonderful providence and faithfulness to his promises. What's amazing about this example is the faithfulness of God's providence in spite of Mordecai and Esther's unfaithfulness. Throughout this story, we're going to see the hero and the heroine are guilty of numerous violations of God's law. The most obvious, of course, was her willingness to marry a pagan. History tells us that Ahasuerus worshipped Zoroaster. As we move through the story, we'll also find that Esther fails to keep the dietary laws. She disregards the Sabbath. She fails to keep the feasts of the Jews. She encountered none of the conflicts with these pagan practices that Daniel did. You remember Daniel and the Babylonians, they had all kinds of problems with what they were wanting to eat. It wasn't kosher, and so he refused to eat it. Esther had no conflicts because she capitulated. She compromised. Esther was quick to compromise, and rather than be a witness, she ended up covering up her heritage. Understand, Esther, in a very real way, represents the Jews of the diaspora, both then and now. At the time, backslidden Jews lived in Persia, but God protected them providentially. And for the last 2,000 years, this has been the plight of world Jewry. They've lived compromised lifestyles in foreign lands, and yet God has been faithful to ensure the survival of the Jewish people in order in these last days to bring them back to inhabit their land once more. It's interesting, the word God never appears in the book of Esther. It's the only book of the Bible void of the word God. And yet that sums up the lives of Esther and Mordecai and many of the Jews of the diaspora. They were Jews, yes, but their Jewishness was more ethnic. It was more racial than it was religious and practical. This also describes most Jews today, especially Jews in the nation Israel. They hold to their Jewishness with a patriotic fondness, but they don't try to keep the law. They're not zealous in their religious faith. Often, many of the Jews don't even believe in God or are agnostic. Bible commentator Alexander McLaren writes along this line, Patriotism is more evident than religion in the book of Esther. To the Jews in Persia, national feeling was stronger than devotion. Esther and Mordecai are what we would call today secular Jews. McLaren continues, The picture of Jewish characteristics in this book shows many of the traits which have marked Jews ever since. Accommodating flexibility, strangely united with unbending tenacity, a capacity for securing the favor of influential people, the willingness to stretch conscience in securing it, reticence and diplomacy, and beneath all, unquenchable devotion to Israel which burns alike in the politician Mordecai and in the lovely Esther. You see, the book of Esther, prophetically, is a blueprint of how God has dealt with the Jews for the last 2,000 years. Even though they've been unfaithful to him, nevertheless, he has been faithful to them. Most Jews today fail to recognize Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior. But that doesn't mean that their Savior is not watching out for them. He is, just as he was in the days of Esther. 
The survival of the Jews to this very day is evidence of God's powerful providence. Now, at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate Ahasuerus. He tells Esther of this plot, who then tells the king in Mordecai's name, and the king then checks it out and finds it to be true. And before long, the two traitors are swinging from the gallows. The matter gets recorded, but it doesn't get rewarded. And I'm sure it disappointed Mordecai that the king didn't acknowledge his life-saving information. But as we'll see, God even had a purpose for that. In chapter 3, verse 1, enter the villain Haman. And you can remember Haman's name and his nature by making an association. Haman and Hitler go together phonetically, and they also go together philosophically. They both hated Jews. Hitler killed six million Jews, and Haman would have killed several million himself if it weren't for Esther and for God's providence. Haman gets promoted. He becomes a big wig in Ahasuerus' government, so big, in fact, that the king orders everyone to bow as he makes his morning commute into the gates of the city. Everyone bows, that is, but Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew with some chutzpah. And though it's not said, the implication is that he refuses to bow to anyone but God. He especially is not going to bow to this Haman. Haman realizes that the issue is Mordecai's Jewishness. And this is why, rather than deal with Mordecai on an individual basis, he plots to annihilate the whole Jewish race. We're told in chapter 3, verse 6, He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Haman decides the day of their destruction by casting poor or lots. He rolls the dice. And guess which month turns up? The twelfth month. And this gives the Jews a whole year to undermine Haman's plan, and to prepare to defend themselves. Understand, if that dice had rolled up the very next day, it would have been disaster for the Jews. But God's providence took control of the dice, and God, not Haman, set the date. You remember the proverb, man throws the dice, but God is the one who controls its outcome. And here it was literally fulfilled. In the last half of chapter 3, Haman gets Ahasuerus to agree to this annihilation of the Jews. And with his signet ring, Ahasuerus seals the order. He makes it official. And chapter 3, verse 13 tells us, And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. The word goes out. It didn't take Mordecai long to hear what had happened. And in chapter 4, verse 1, we're told, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes. And he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. And immediately, Morty runs to tell Queen Esther what has happened. She learns that he's dressed in sackcloth, and so she sends her cousin some clothes, but he refuses to change out of the sackcloth and ashes. He wants Esther to know that this situation cannot be glossed over. This is serious. This is critical. Chapter 4, verse 8 tells us, Mordecai also gave Esther's servant a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and to plead before him for her people. But Esther was not quite sure this was a good idea. Ahasuerus was powerful. His ego was as big as his empire. 
You see, he had a rule. Don't interrupt. I don't know how he handled his kids, but it applied to his wife, so I suppose it applied to his kids too. Don't interrupt. All overtures were by appointment only. And if you entered the king's chambers without observing this protocol, even if you were his wife, it could be curtains. If he didn't extend to you the ball of his scepter, it was a death sentence. And besides, it had been a month since Esther had even seen the king. For all she knows, he might be angry. Or worse, your highness might be high. He might have been drinking those last 30 days. And Vashti will tell you, when Ahasuerus gets drunk, he gets awful mad at his women folk. And so Esther sends word to Mordecai that it might not be a good idea for me to go see the king. Not at this time. But Mordecai refuses to give up. In chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, he answers Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know, providence always has a point. God positions us for a purpose. God worked out the circumstances to get you into the job that you now possess. You didn't think you had a chance. You weren't qualified, but the Lord opened the door. You thought there was no way you could get the financing for that new house. But amazingly, God worked it out. God got you into the class that your counselor told you was closed out. You made the team. And you didn't think you had a chance in the world, but God opened the door. But hey, now that the door is open, now that the job is yours, now that you're a neighbor, now that you're in the class, what are you going to do with the opportunity? Providence always has a point. Perhaps God has put you where you're at for such a time as this. There's a person that needs to be loved in that office. There's a stand for truth that needs to be taken. There's an example that needs to be set. And God has providentially positioned you so that you can be the answer to that need. He sets you up to shine forth His light and His love and His truth. Don't miss the point of providence. As Esther's been going back and forth now with Mordecai, she's been counting the cost. At first, she wanted to keep her head in the sand. Finally, she's willing to lay her head on the line. She agrees to risk it all, really. Her position, even her life itself, to step up on behalf of her nation and her people. And so she says in chapter 4, verse 16, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. She's asking Morty and all the Jews to pray, 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 baby, pray. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. But if I perish, I perish. She had counted the cost. Esther had thought through the worst case scenario. And yet she was ready to make the commitment. Guys, if Esther was this devoted to the Jews, how much more should you and I be devoted to the Jew that we have come to love and worship and serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How much do we love Him? Jesus died for you and for me. Are you and I willing to die for Him? Maybe even harder, are we willing to die daily For him, die to our own selfishness, our own interests, and live for God's glory. So often, we cower away at the slightest offense. We're intimidated by a simple sneer. 
We become the brunt of a joke and we back off in our witness. Where's our courage? Someone mocks our faith and we get timid. Hey, this was not Esther's job on the line. This was not her popularity. This is not the boy she wants to date that might turn his back on her. This is not the impression that she's trying to make on a customer that's on the chopping block here. Her very life is on the line. And yet she's willing to give it up. If I perish, I perish. This is the kind of devotion that you and I need to have for our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5 verse 2 tells us what happens when Esther enters the king's chambers. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. Oh, I'm glad. Ahasuerus asked Esther to make her request. He's in a generous mood. But for some reason, we're not told, Esther doesn't sense that the timing is right. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet. And in chapter 5, verse 6, the banquet is called a banquet of wine. And it seems to me that a shrewd Esther thought that she could tip the king her way if he was a little tipsy. And so she decided to sauce him up a little bit, you know, kind of get him a little drunk before she popped her question. At the feast, she's asked again to voice her concern. But again, she refuses. Either she's building up nerve or she's still waiting for the perfect time. Maybe it was both. Esther invites both the king and Haman to another banquet the next day. And when Haman gets home that night, he starts bragging. Bragging about all of these blessings that Ahasuerus has poured out upon him. Even Queen Esther has invited me to a banquet tomorrow. And he's real proud about it. He would really be feeling fine if it were not for that Mordecai. What a guy, Mordecai. That stubborn Jew. And Mordecai's refusal to bow down before Haman was a burr in his saddle and he got angry and he started to sizzle. And his wife Zeresh had an idea. Chapter 5 verse 14 she says, Let a gallows be made. Fifty cubits high. That's about 75 feet. In other words, let's just hang him high. And in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and so he made the gallows. Apparently the construction started immediately. It went up overnight. In chapter 6, the scene shifts back to the king's bedroom. And in verse 1 we're told, That night the king could not sleep. The kid at Little Caesars must have put too many anchovies on the pizza. Ahasuerus needed to get some shut-eye. There were affairs of state the next day. And so he brought in his cure for insomnia, the royal records. Surely a few pages of government regulations will be enough to put me to sleep. And we're told, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And guess which page fell open? Here we go again. God's providence back at work. Chapter 6, verse 2 and 3 tells us, And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. What are the odds? Of the thousand pages of government regulations, the royal register, that the one page that fell open was what mentioned Mordecai's kind deed for the king and how it had gone unrewarded. You see, the king now needs a courier to deliver Mordecai's reward. 
And so he asks, it's still early in the morning, and so he asks, who's in the building? Who, who can serve as my courier and carry all this out? And guess who had showed up early that morning? Haman just couldn't wait to get to work that day. He'd gone by the stop and go, gotten him a big cup of coffee, come in about 4 o'clock. <laughs> he was ready to hang him high. Who's in the building? Well, you know, Haman just walked in. Well, go get him. And Ahasuerus asks Haman, he says, what should be done for a loyal servant of the king? Now, this haughty Haman, he's thinking, man, he must be talking about me. And so he's thinking, he's, he's articulating his own reward. So he lays it on thick. He says, man, he needs to have a royal robe. He needs to be put up on the king's horse and he needs to be paraded through the street so that people can praise him and, and just give him all kinds of honor and glory. And as we read chapter 6, verse 10, try to imagine the look on Haman's face. The king said to Haman, hurry. Take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. That guy turned as white as a sheet. His jaw dropped three feet. And yet this is just the beginning. It gets worse. Haman is having a bad hair day. When he's finished honoring Mordecai, he rushes home. He starts to weep and mourn. And as he's talking the situation over with his wife and friends, the limo arrives that's supposed to take him to Esther's banquet. He gets in that limo and he doesn't know it, but he will never come home again at the banquet. Again, Ahasuerus asks Esther to reveal her petition. And this time she spills the beans. She says, a man is plotting the annihilation of me and my people. And in chapter 7, verse 5, the king asks, who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther (laughs) points over to Haman and answers the king, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. And we're told in the remainder, verse 6, so Haman was terrified before the king and queen. I suppose so. What happens next is wild. Ahasuerus gets furious. His most trusted officer has plotted to kill his wife, his in-laws, and their whole family, their whole nation. In the anger management he's been taking since the episode with Vashti, Ahasuerus has been taught that you need to cool off. You need that cooling off period. And so he decides to leave the room to cool down. He goes out to the garden. While he's gone, Haman begs Esther for mercy. He's on his knees. He's at her feet. He's begging and pleading. And in the process... He accidentally falls over on her. So that when Ahasuerus walks back into the room, he looks up and there's Haman with his head in Esther's lap. And Ahasuerus can't believe it. He says in verse 8, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? And as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. The old black hood goes on, and that's never a good sign. (laughs) And here's the irony of all ironies. In verse 9, a servant of the king glances out the window, and he says, Hey, there's a 70-foot high gallows out there that just sprung up overnight. (laughs) And the king says, What a coincidence. We need some gallows today. Let's hang Haman high. And imagine, Haman hangs from the gallows he himself had built for Mordecai. How quickly God is able to turn the tables on the enemies of his people. You know, throughout the history of the Jewish people, God has done just that time and time again. God told Abraham that he would bless the nations 
that bless Israel, and he would curse the nations that curse Israel. Interestingly, even though Hitler killed six million Jews, God turned the tables on his intentions. It was the Holocaust that galvanized world sentiment and convinced the United Nations once and for all for the need for a Jewish homeland. You see, Hitler's intention was to annihilate the Jews. Instead, he was the primary cause for the formation of the modern state of Israel. Isn't that ironic? And what a strange twist in history. As Germany crumbled, Israel was born. Throughout history, God's providence has protected and prodded his people. Again, I love the words of Alexander McLaren. The book of Esther does not say much about God, but his presence broods over it all and is the real spring that moves the movers that are seen. It is all a lesson of how God works out his purposes through men that seem themselves to be working out theirs. Isn't that interesting? That's providence. And what about God's providence in your life? I'm sure that we could spend the rest of the night discussing ways in which God has providentially ordered your circumstances, worked in your situations, directed the course of your life to fulfill His plans and His purposes for you. We all should be thankful for God's amazing providence. In chapter 8, verse 1, the king gives Haman, he gives his house over to Esther, and he gives Haman's job to Mordecai. But the queen's concerns run deeper because she's still thinking about the 12th month and what's going to happen. And in chapter 8, verse 3, Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. In the 12th month, there's still going to be people that are going to try to kill the the Jews to cash in on the bounty. And you remember, under Persian law, once a king's edict had been issued, it was irrevocable. What Ahasuerus does is he issues a new edict that counterbalances his previous orders. He commands the Jews everywhere to arm themselves and to fight back against their attackers. And in chapter 8, verse 9, There's a verse that describes how the king's scribes recorded Ahasuerus' new orders. And what's also interesting about verse 9 of chapter 8 is it's the longest verse in the Bible. Next time you get into a trivia contest with someone, you got a good, good, good question there. What's the longest verse in the Bible? It's Esther chapter 8 verse 9, 81 words. Now when month 12 rolls around, the Jews are armed to the teeth. And chapter 9, verse 1 tells us, Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, or on our calendar, March the 7th, 473 B.C., the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. In that, the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. And verse 2 goes as far as to say, And no one could withstand them. The Jewish counterattack against her enemies went so well that in verse 13 of chapter 9, Esther asked the king for another day to wipe out the enemies of the Jews there in the city of Shushan. And the retaliatory slaughter included hanging Haman's ten sons. In verse 4 of chapter 9, we're told what happened to cousin Mordecai. Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Again, a work of God's providence. So many events occur in the book of Esther that we could introduce by saying, and it just so happened. But nothing just so happens. That's the point of this book. God is at work behind the scenes. It's been said of the book of Esther, the absence of the name of God does not mean the absence of the hand of God. God's hand is at work throughout the book, 
even in the minutest details. And the same is true in our own lives. God is at work. Nothing happens by chance. God is in control. We don't always see his plan, but we can rest assured that he has one, and it is good. The remainder of chapter 9 is devoted to the origin of the Feast of Purim. You remember, poor means lots. Haman threw them, but God controlled them. Mordecai and Queen Esther establish a celebration. Every year, the Jews are to commemorate the upper hand that God gave them over their enemies. And in chapter 9, verse 22, Mordecai tells the Jews to remember Adar the 13th and the 14th as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. And to this day... Every year, Jews the world over celebrate the Feast of Purim as a time of merriment, as a time of rejoicing and celebration. Along with Hanukkah, it's one of the two major Jewish feasts not required in the Law of Moses and yet practiced every year by the Jewish people. Purim is also a big occasion for the children. They dress in crazy costumes, they march in parades, and there's plenty of candy at the Feast of Purim. On Purim, the Jews gather in their synagogues and they reread the story of Esther. And every time, as the story's being read, the name Haman is read, everyone starts to boo and hiss. In fact, they have noisy little rattlers they call groggers, and everybody shakes their grogger. And then every time the word Mordecai is mentioned, everyone starts to cheer. And it's a fun reading of the story. Let me close with a poem about providence and about the book of Esther. Man proposes, God disposes, all things his design fulfill. Every human wrath unconscious serves to execute his will. This the goal of all the ages. Highways, byways, higher bend. And despite all foes and factions, God is victor in the end. So man's festival of Purim. Red in faith's illumined sense shall be seen in realms eternal as the feast of providence. Father, we thank you for your providence in our lives. Great is your faithfulness. And we stand in awe of it tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.